Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only and should not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, integrative dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her vice president, integrative dietitian Carly Vogler. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 38 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. We have a special guest today, Diana Rogers of Sustainable Dish, and we are super excited. This is our first registered dietitian guest, so it was selected <laughs> with great enthusiasm and um, interest. And um, Diana is going to be talking to us today about her passion of sustainability in the food system, uh, also the role of meat and how that can be a sustainable choice. Uh, we're very passionate as you all know, of the power of protein and the snout-to-tail philosophy. And Diana, uh, living on a working organic farm, has a lot of uh, interesting experience with that whole element. So um, Carly is going to do a little bit of a formal intro, and then um, we'll, we'll rock and roll and welcome our guest. Diana Rogers is a real food licensed registered dietitian nutritionist and nutritional therapy practitioner living on a working organic farm west of Boston. She has a private practice and a popular podcast called Sustainable Dish and is a staff writer for Paleo Magazine. Work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Outside Magazine, and Mother Earth News. She is the author of Homegrown Paleo, Paleo Lunches, and Breakfasts on the Go. She's clearly a very busy, successful woman. (laughs) So welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you. And um, so like I said, our first registered dietitian guest, and um, we met through a networking group, Real Food RDs. I think that was like a year ago. It lasted for a half year or so, and um, it was a bunch of different uh, female entrepreneurs in the RD field that believed in sustainability and paleo lifestyle. Um, and is it not there anymore? I don't know. I, no, I think it is. But as far as like oh. the meetings that the meetings that we were doing, oh, you know, it was like a, a six month run or something. Yeah, <laughs> those are hard because everyone's so busy and it's just it's just hard to make those happen. Absolutely. But I've always admired. I've, I've actually told her that she's my spirit animal because um, <laughs> I so admire um, your lifestyle. There's so many funny parallels. Um I lived in the Pacific Northwest and my husband was interning at a farm and our whole vision was that we were going to, I was going to practice on a working living farm and um, we were doing herbal medicine making and brewing our own kombucha and dehydrating and preserving all of the produce and we never got into the uh, animal um, element of it. So I definitely want to learn a lot about that today, but mm-hmm. um yeah, I, I just uh, love your vision and how you incorporate the lifestyle into the mission of uh, food as medicine and nutrition. Thanks. Yeah, actually, we were in the Pacific Northwest right after college when uh, my husband decided to make the big switch. So we were we both had you know corporate jobs out of college, and he was really really miserable um, working at his 
at his desk job in a cubicle and there was um, a couple of CSA farms that we would visit. Uh, so community supported agriculture. And then he read a book called, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it now, by Wendell Berry, The um, Unsettling of America. Mm-hmm. So he read that, visited a few farms, and then at age 26, declared he was going to be a farmer. Awesome. And and so what so. was the transition? Um, I saw that, you know, he was a working intern at first and then started running mm-hmm. a farm when you guys moved out back to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the transition into working with livestock? How did that come about and how much hands-on experience did it take? And when did you guys really feel that you had, you know, the ability to, to run a farm with that? So it's, it's kind of funny because, well, so he went back to school and got, um, well, attended a school to get a master's in soil science. Um, and it was actually the same school we went to for undergrad. Uh, and so while he was sort of arguing with the thesis committee uh, who wanted him to do a thesis on, you know, like a broccoli some kind of chemical used in bro- growing broccoli, and he wanted to do it on the sci- uh, financial viability of CSAs as a financial model because he's, this was new at the time. He ended up getting a job offer to be a farm manager at a farm north of Boston where we ended up uh, living for 10 years. And so he was like, well, I guess I don't really need this paper of a master's, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I learned everything I need to learn, and they won't let me do the you know thesis I want to do, so bye-bye. You know, we had this great job offer uh, that includes housing, and so that's, that's what makes it you know, possible for us uh, because it's quite an expensive place to live here in the Northeast, and farmers don't make a ton of money. So if, you, if you're a farmer that can find housing as part yeah. of the job, it's definitely – um, bonus. And so it was a vegetable farm at the time. I think there were no animals, maybe the first year. And how many uh, acres about? So that one was gigantic. It was 230 acres. Wow. Uh, not all of it was farmed. A lot of it was wooded. Um, and, and the farm had been losing tons of money. And, and so basically he was charged with turning it around and stopping it from losing so much money, which he did do. Um, and then, you know, it's funny, it's like every year for Christmas, I would get him a book on like sheep and I would just kind of <laughs> stories guide to raising sheep or, you know, whatever, a book on pigs and he would read it. And then, you know, a few months later, we'd have a few sheep. And so really it's, you can't really go to school to learn how to raise farm animals. Right. It's, there's not like a program you can attend. Well, I, I mean, I guess there are programs now in like sustainable agriculture, but most of them are focusing on vegetable production. Mm-hmm. And so really it's just sort of trial and error. It's visiting a couple of farms that are doing it the way you might want to do it, reading some books, like especially by anything by Joel Salatin or even, you know, if you have the opportunity to go to his farm down right. in Virginia, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, yeah, so it's just kind of starting small, seeing how it goes, making mistakes. You know, uh, our pigs used to escape constantly. You know, we'd have, like, wild pigs just running all over the place all the time uh, because we didn't realize that uh, when they hit an electric fence, they go forwards where sheep <laughs> will go backwards. <laughs> Uh, so we, 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 you know, developed our own way of introducing them slowly to the electric fence so that, you know, with hog paneling anyway. So, so there's lots of little things that you learn, um, how to manage, you know, problems that come up, that kind of stuff. And then also getting into the veterinary side too, because there's not a lot, 
you know, the vets around here are dogs and cats and then maybe horses. So there's just not a lot of vets that know a ton about pigs and sheep and chickens. That was my <laughs> uh, next so, question. Was that intimidating when, you know, if they got sick and you didn't have as many resources? That's pretty overwhelming. I mean, I'm sure you developed connections to these animals and then you have to be their, not only their caregiver, but their, their doctor, right? Yeah. So, well, with, sh- with chickens, you know, the home, the homestead or the home-based person with a small flock of chickens would act differently, right, than a farmer who has 300 chickens and one sure. or two die, right? Um, but if we have a significant loss, we definitely want to look into it and find out if there's some kind of disease spreading through. Uh, we definitely do not accept chickens from small homes, you know, like other farms, because you could be introducing some kind of virus or something and and chickens are quite susceptible to getting sick so there's little tricks like that um and with the with the sheep and the pigs definitely you know there's books on you know what you can you, you can kind of just look things up staying on top of their parasites um meaning you just have to move them often and not let them graze on the same piece of uh land all the time so that they're not eating you know if one person if one of one person if one sheep has um a parasite overload it won't get all the other ones sure. sick uh, so, you know, just kind of learning sustainable farming techniques, too. When it's interesting, I've told listeners before my journey with real food, I'm a recovering vegan um, <laughs> for a very long time now. But when I went to Bastyr University in Seattle, um, one of my first breaking of, well, my professors were always questioning me on the sustainability element. You know, they would say mm-hmm. things like, okay, so you're really going to buy that tub of earth balance, <laughs> with, which is not a real food of partially hydrogenated soybean oil and this and that, and um, the influence that that has when you can get butter churned up the road. Um, and I remember one of my first uh, animal product indulgences, we had a raw dairy farmer. Um, she was a goat farmer. And she talked about using like calendula um, on mastitis on her um, goats. And mm-hmm. um, it was just really, I, th- I think that the harmonious, all too often we get very, there's this, with our entire food system in the American diet, we have this sterility um, factor and that sterility can be safe. And I think that that's a huge misconceived notion, you know, that Mm -hmm. the label is a good thing. You want to kind of go by the numbers, go by the facts. But as we kind of get back to the root, the nitty gritty, the organic and the relationship and the viable elements of real food, um, when you start to learn about the story and the synergy and, and the element that the chickens and the ruminants have on creating a better agricultural environment for the plant species and how this ecosystem works, um, it makes you want to be a part of the story. And I think a part of it is consuming the animal products. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that was kind of a part of my like, oh, awakening moment, I suppose. Yeah. So I've written a lot about all of this stuff, about the importance nutritionally of animal protein in our diets and then the role that they play in creating better soils, which is really how we're going to feed people moving forward. And so everyone keeps saying, oh, well, you know, how, how are you going to feed everyone on grass fed, you know, beef? And it's like, well, if we don't have healthy soil, we're not going to feed anybody on anything. And so it's absolutely critical that we manage our soil properly. And that includes animal inputs in order to get vegetable outputs. And so a vegetarian vegan diet is just not going to do that. Right. Absolutely. Organic matter is absolutely required uh, for that whole transition. 
Yeah. And, and tell me, um, so how how long of a period was it? Like a three to five year period that you guys got comfortable with using livestock? Did you start with chickens? Did you start with the goat goats you mentioned, or kind of how did that evolve? Yeah. Um, well, actually, so all this time when we were at um, the first farm we were at, we were there for 10 years, like I mentioned. Uh, for the first few years, I was actually a marketing manager for Whole Foods um, and not actively working on the farm. And then after I had our second kid, it, just the cost of childcare didn't, um, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Your Money or Your Life, but I, I did the calculations in that book. It's absolutely fantastic. And they make you kind of Carly, look Carly's at, writing it down. She's like, yes. Oh, so <laughs> Thank <great>. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they make you look at, okay, after taxes, after gasoline, after the meals you probably eat out because you're not organized enough to, you know, get your yourself together, you know, in the morning to, to bring meals every day after the dry cleaning, after everything, how much money. Are, and then after two kids in daycare, yeah, <laughs> you know, I ended up, you know, I was like, wow, I make $4 an hour or something mm -hmm. like that. It was, it was really low and it was just such a wake up call. And I was like, do I, do I want to stay home or do I want to make $4 an hour? Um, and so I, I tried staying home for a little bit and just my combination of kids was, it was not easy for me to be with them full time. Um, and, but I, so I wanted to do something, um, where I got out of the house a little bit, but also was close to home. And so I ended up running the farm stand, uh, with all my background in marketing with Whole Foods. And so I ran the farm stand. We had a professional kitchen there. I did all the weddings. So I kind of did like all the front of the house stuff. I managed our CSA memberships. Uh, we had 450 CSA members, a big store. We ran a co-op. We ran a raw milk co-op. So I sort of corralled all that stuff. And my husband was really the one um, out there in the fields, like raising the animals and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but that's not to say that there has not been occasions where I've been, you know, on my way out to dinner with some girlfriends in a black cocktail dress, having to chase sheep up the street. Because <laughs> that happens too. And the police always have my cell phone on speed dial because <laughs> um, things get loose. And we were always, we always seem to end up uh, farming in very um, densely populated areas. So the farm that we're on now is right in town center and we've got, you know, all these animals and uh, sometimes it happens. Actually, often it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, so I, uh, chickens for eggs is what we started with. And those are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We got really hardy animals. So we don't really, my husband doesn't like to mess around with all those cutesy breeds that you can get. Yeah. Uh, in the egg catalogs, just because he's a numbers guy and he, you know, wants the chickens that, you know, convert uh, grain to egg quickly. Good and yield. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, they do get pasture as well, but chickens eat um, seeds and that's what birds eat. And so they do get supplemented with grain. Um, and so anyway, so we started with uh, chickens and then we did chickens for meat briefly uh, we found that for our market, we weren't able to really, um, how should I say it? Well, in order to raise the chickens that we wanted to raise, we would have had to charge like $30, $35 per bird sure. um, for them. Uh, and people just, you know, they're used to their $5 Purdue oven stuffer roaster kind of thing. 
And the Cornish cross chicken, which is the commodity chicken that you would get, you know, in the grocery store, they don't do that great outdoors. Uh, for example, if there's a thunderstorm, they all could have heart attacks and just keel over. <laughs> and if you don't slaughter them by five weeks, they'll just die anyway of organ failure. They're not a great bird. Um, I've, I've also written a lot about how I'm not a huge fan of chickens for meat because okay. they're just not um, as sustainable as a larger ruminant animal um, or a pig. So we, after the chicken experiments and turkey experiments. Turkeys are, are quite susceptible to viruses and things like that. So again, the poultry for meat can be a tricky thing when you're doing a sustainable farm. Pigs, on the other hand, do great. They run through the woods. We started with maybe a handful of pigs the first year. This past year, I think we raised 45 pigs. Wow. Something like that. Um, and we have them all through the wood, running through the woods. They do get supplemented with organic, uh, non-soy grain. And then we have sheep as well. And then goats was the most recent addition. That was probably four years ago or so. We started, we started with goats. And I have to say they're my favorite. Hmm. Okay. They're, they're really fun. <laughs> and was that – I saw on your Instagram, was that the um, sheep with the pumpkin – that was eating yeah yeah (laughs) it's a really it's so funny you wouldn't think a sheep would eat pumpkins yeah getting all those carotenoids (laughs) yeah and we have so those are pumpkins given to us by a guy that has a farm stand not too far away and he needed something you know he didn't want to just toss the pumpkins yeah and so you know he they're providing food for our animals it's just a really nice kind of uh synergy that we have with a lot of local um, animal producers and, and lovers around here. That's awesome. Yeah. And so how was your connection? Um, I want to talk about the RD thing in a moment, but before we go into that, um, your transition from, I saw in your uh, description of yourself, you know, being that buyer at Whole Foods and the transition of the celiac disease diagnosis and kind of gluten-free products replacing other products. Yeah. Um, and then going into the paleo lifestyle and how that altered your blood sugar metabolism and just kind of satiety and overall. And then how you transitioned into the kind of paleo community, if you will, like your connections mm-hmm. with Rob Wolf and Nom Nom Paleo and how that all kind of came about. Yeah, this could be a very long podcast. <laughs> I'll try to give you a quicker version. Okay, because we have poignant questions coming. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so while I was running the farm stand, I started, you know, I was selling things like raw milk and coconut oil, and I would get questions from customers. Well, I thought it was a saturated fat, and those are bad. And I would sort of be able to answer the question, but not to the depth that I was comfortable with, you know, like I would sort of say, well, it's better to eat saturated fat because, um, it's saturated and it's good. You know, <laughs> talk to Chris master, John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I went to a Weston a price conference and started getting more interested in nutrition and then decided I really wanted to learn more about nutrition. And so I attended nutritional therapy association, which, um, I got an NTP certificate from so it's a nutritional therapy practitioner which is a very weston a price whole foods type uh education and then i opened my practice and i started realizing that most of the people that were coming to me had very complicated medical issues right they weren't just looking to eat healthy 
And so I really felt strongly that I needed to become a registered dietitian if I really wanted to dedicate myself full time to helping people with their nutrition, Uh, because I just didn't feel comfortable with my with my NTA degree to really be doing medical nutrition therapy, which you're not supposed to be doing, right? And so I kept a part-time practice and then part-time went back to school. And it was a little bit of a challenge because, number one, I started when I was like 37. Uh, So that was something, you know, to have to go back and basically it's another bachelor's degree. It's not just a a master's, so it's, it's quite a bit. I think it was like 23 classes altogether. I tried to never actually add them all up or look at the bill all at once. Oh, I can relate. Yeah, it's definitely like redoing all of your undergrad is what it feels like. And for me, I was a fine arts major with an art history minor. So (laughs) just different ball game, Uh, not a lot of crossover. (laughs) Yeah. So, and and it's funny because I looked back and I actually took a ton of science. I've always been interested in science and I took a ton of science classes undergrad, but they wouldn't, you know, they didn't accept them because it had been too long. So going back and, you know, really digging into biochem, which I absolutely love having to study for the first time in my life because I didn't really study (laughs) um, undergrad and and finally, you know, finishing up with that internship, with, which, you know, was was definitely a challenge. And uh, now I have my part-time practice, and I write with the other um, time that I have. And so it's a really nice balance between kind of like my introvert self and then yeah. my extrovert self, because it's 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 really great to help people with their diet, but for me, sometimes it's just, it, I put so much energy out there to help them that I don't think I would be able to do it like 40 hours. It's just, it's just really intense work. I'm wondering, so, sorry, this is Carly. Oh, I just, about two years ago, I just went through the same process of basically going back to school and getting my RD. And I'm just sitting here wondering how the heck you did this with kids. <laughs> it was really hard. I mean, I definitely, it was every single weekend I, you know, my husband was really supportive and able to help with taking them to their sports games and, and all that kind of stuff. So definitely, and then supporting them, you know, being around and cooking for them and everything while I went on all these conferences, because that was the other tangential sort of, you know, I was, I was going through the RD program, but then I was also listening to every single podcast I could possibly devour, going to every single nutrition conference I possibly could not only to absorb the speaker information but also to meet people um, in this field and talk to them and so as you mentioned Nom Nom Paleo I met her at I believe it was the very first or maybe the second Paleo FX and she and I hit it off immediately and we're we're practically best friends now I mean I text with her almost daily and Emily Deans also happened to become a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, she's a uh, psychiatrist that is in the Boston area and really uh, quite an expert in the biome and how diet affects our mental health. And she and I got to travel to New Zealand together, but also got to spend a little extra time traveling around. So that was really fun. And then you mentioned Rob Wolf. So he's become another one of my very good friends and I do blogging for him. He and I are writing a book together and he really, uh, 
started getting interested in the whole sustainability stuff the same time that I was sort of coming out with it as well. So we really connected on the sustainability stuff. Yeah, you guys did those shirts together, right? The Paleo 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> sustainability is greater than abs. Well, it was really, I was like, <laughs> if I made this shirt, would you please wear it? Yes. So. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. We'll give you more credit then. Um, <laughs> so, and, and then you also were putting out, because I remember your book tour, um, Tanya Pizzo, you did a stop at the Fifth Ward Farm in Houston. Um, uh-huh. And we did an event there. The We have an event that we call Pharmacy with an F instead of a PH, and it's a food is medicine day. And we had done that year, ours in Edna, Texas, and then the following year at the, the Fifth Ward Farm, Last Organic Outpost. Um, and so it's just so funny. We have so many parallels. I don't know where I was, but I remember she put that that um, book tour stop. And that was what, only two years ago? or Yeah. So all was that was happening <laughs> also. So hot that day. I mean, I know it gets hot in Texas. But oh, yeah. Was, I remember I, I was like, oh, it's not so bad. I was, you know, worried for nothing. And then right after I got up and started speaking, I just, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm soaking wet. Yeah. I, I was so, so hot. And then there was really intense thunderstorms on the way back. And um, yeah, it was, I almost missed my flight because the <laughs> thunderstorms were so intense and violent. I'm sure you could cut the humidity with a knife that day then. That's yeah. delightful. <laughs> awesome. Um, good. So, so okay, a lot of juggling acts and you happened to also put out a book in the process though, right, of your RD or did you get the book out right before you went back to school? What was the timeline there? Both books actually. Paleo Lunches and Breakfast on the Go was the first one I did and that came out in 2013 while I was while I was, I remembered in biochem and statistics. Delightful. The two <laughs> hardest classes for me during the program. And I did that book at that time. And then um, Paleo, uh, Homegrown Paleo was the second book I did. And that one took a lot more time. It was sort of spread out actually right. over two years. And so it wasn't quite as um, immediately intense as Paleo Lunches, but it took a lot, lot more work. But it was really important for me to have that balance. I think if I had gone to school full time, it would have been a lot more frustrating for me. I'm glad that it was sort of a large hobby and not you know, my only thing that I was doing. It definitely made it more digestible. And did you have a uh, mantra, if you will, or (laughs) a Mm. mindset that you had to channel and go back to when you were doing certain rotations that were against your ethos or, um, you know, kind of uh, having to sip the Kool-Aid while you guzzle your kombucha Mm -hmm. on the other end of the fence? Or (laughs) what was your kind of push through during that time of the internship, I guess? Yeah, during the internship, I ended up um, doing an ISPP. So for those listeners who are familiar with the RD programs, it is um, not a classic internship. It's sort of like an independent study type internship. And so I was able to organize my own rotations, which was really great. So I ended up um, working under my friend Ayla, who has Boston Functional Nutrition, and she and I actually share an office together now. So that was really fantastic. And I worked for Daily Table in Boston, which uh, is the grocery store started by the founder of Trader Joe's. And they take expired and surplus food and sell it at a huge discount to people in Dorchester, which is definitely a um, at-risk neighborhood in Boston. And so I did a needs assessment for them. So that was really rewarding. When I got to my acute 
clinical rotation. It was definitely challenging. It was, you know, it was the first time I had ever really seen death. So that was, that was really, really hard for me. And one of the best things though, was my boss there. So I ended up, she had been, you know, chronically on Weight Watchers forever. And so I was like sort of working on her <laughs> and, you know, converted her to paleo during the process. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And I, without, you know, without needing to do anything, like she would just sort of would look at my lunches and I would just kind of talk about, you know, oh yeah, I, you know, tend to eat a lot of fat actually. And, you know, and she just kept saying, you're blowing my mind. You're blowing. My mind. <laughs> <laughs> and so she and I are still really great friends. Uh, so I guess the hardest thing for me was the nursing home rotation. Yes. Actually. I had one of those too. Yeah. Uh, just because there just wasn't nutritionally a whole lot I could really do. The doctor's um, we're not super receptive to a dietitian's input in much. And, um, yeah, that whole like end of life care is definitely at the opposite end of where I'm trying to help people. And so that was definitely, but luckily that was a very short rotation. And, um, and then I didn't have to do a food service rotation because I had already run a kitchen. And so they wrote that off. So that was really, I was lucky for that. Were they using a lot of insure and supplemental products too in the elderly home? In both the acute care sure. and the elderly was definitely, yeah. And it, the acute care in particular was really hard for me because this was, it was long-term care, long-term acute care. And so these folks were basically coming out of the ICU, but too sick to go to rehab or nursing or home. So people with, you know, um, just comp more complicated cases needing a lot of medical attention, but not ICU level attention. And I would just watch, you know, over the three average three week period that they would be there, their insulin dose just going up and up mm -hmm. and up. And I actually ran a report and it was pretty scary. You know, people coming in at pretty low dose and every single one of them leaving at, you know, five times higher what they came in on over the three week period. And so just, you know, watching the kitchen kind of screwing up a lot and <laughs> them not really caring or not knowing or, you know, just the, that classic, the severe, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just going to say like a, a diabetic breakfast was, you know, a banana, a bowl of cornflakes or oatmeal. Skim milk. <laughs> skim milk. Yeah, no protein, no fat. No fat. Just pure carbs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. <laughs> yes. And I remember I, when I was in long-term care, I was like writing prescriptions for zinc and vitamin C. And, and you know, it was, that was to the level. Or, or advocating for a swallowing study test was something I felt like I could actually do to, you know, like let's get them back to PO. Um, but, yeah, a lot of a lot of um, – running my head up against a wall and um, yes, <laughs> there, there's mantras to need to get through it. Um, so let's talk about your advocacy in um, protein. I want to kind of say some, I, I know you write a lot about it, but for listeners that are new to this, um, some of the generalized myths and how you would debunk them, if you will. Um, and so how about the, the one of we can use plants um, for for our protein needs, that, that plants can provide ample protein in our diet? Mm -hmm. We need a lot more protein, first of all, than people think we do. And so, you know, even backing up a step further than, you know, what type of protein to, need to, to, to use 
in order to just get the baseline of protein that we should be getting, which is a lot more than the RDA, um, you would need to eat so much more plants than animal protein. So animal protein is more efficient as far as volume. You can eat a very small amount of fish or chicken or steak in order to get the same amount of protein that you would have to eat, you know, so much more of in like it's 10 potatoes versus three ounces of fish. So I, I kind of went through and calculated all these different plant-based um, foods to animal-based foods. So as far as the, as the volume, it's just a lot more plant-based foods. So, you know, not many of us are looking to eat more add more calories to our diet, but you need a lot more. You need like 800 calories worth of peanut butter to get the same amount of protein you would get in 100 calories worth of fish. Right, right. Yeah. And then, of course, they're, it's not as bioavailable to us. We're not able to really pull what we need from plant-based proteins the way we can we can utilize animal-based proteins. Um, plant-based plant proteins are, are lacking in certain essential amino acids. And yes, you can combine things, but again, you're you're still looking at inferior sources of protein versus um, an animal-based protein. And I mean, even in my classic, you know, dietitian school, you can't argue that, right? Like the prof you, the most bioavailable protein is meat. Right. right? That's just sort of fact, mm -hmm. and no one can argue that one. Um, and so. Uh, the other thing I was going to say about meat is that it's not, it doesn't just provide protein, right? There's so many other great things that meat has that vegetables don't have, you know, like vitamin B12 and iron. Uh, with iron deficiency is the number one vitamin deficiency in the world. We're not going to fix that by, you know, eating more tofu. Right, that same bioavailability factor of the non-heme versus heme-containing iron that you only get from the red meat, the salmon, those heme-containing compounds from animal. Um, and so, you know, again, that idea of spinach, even if you combine it with vitamin C to make that non-heme iron more available, it has more anti-nutrients and oxalates, um, which aren't going to allow that assimilation or that utilization like you get from the animal source. Exactly. And the omega-3 that you can get from fish is just so far superior. Not everyone can convert um, omega-3s from plants to what we need um, to use in our bodies. So uh, animal, we're just, we're designed to incorporate animal protein very well into um, our muscle tissue and, and all the other tissues that we need and the, our immune system, everything that, that protein builds in our bodies. Yeah, I think, and I think an often overlooked, um, we often explain to our clients, especially during the time of active weight loss, we hold protein at an even higher uh, necessity because you're mm -hmm. going through catabolism, right? And so you want to break down uh, your fat, maintain your lean muscle structure. And so you're going to need a little bit additional support to ensure that you don't go into uh, muscle wasting during your weight loss process. And that's where a lot of people plateau and then regain weight. Um, yeah. And, and then their set point goes down, but it, it doesn't have to go down. Right. So, right. So if someone is, you know, normally ate, you know, 2,500 calories a day, and then you put them on a diet of 1800 calories and they lose their weight, their new set point now is much lower than the initial 25. But if they have built some lean muscle, um, during that process, it doesn't have to be 
as low. And the other thing is protein is so satiating. So, you know, when you think of a buffet, all you can eat buffet, no one's like freaking out on the boneless, skinless chicken breast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Protein is the most satiating. And I was actually even reading another study uh, talking about how people eat to get their minimum protein. So, so, you know, people will ad lib, uh, eat as much as they can to, in order to just get their minimum protein. And so if you're meeting your minimum protein, you're just overall going to eat less. Yes. And guys, we don't want you eating boneless, skinless chicken breasts. No, <laughs> we want you yeah. doing bone in, skin on, get some fat, balance out your amino acids. Yes. Right, right, right. That's a constant. Yeah, I'm just That's trying a... to illustrate that, you oh, know, yeah. it's like, you know, the, the burger isn't the problem. It's the bun, the cheese, Absolutely. the fries, the deep fried apple pie, and the 72 ounce Coke that is going with the burger. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or, or, or drink that Diet Coke because that makes a lot of sense <laughs> with that meal. Um, and, and so that's another thing, uh, talking about... So I think getting the protein understanding for like our, our a certain level of client, they can, they can understand that. And then when we cross into the saturated fat thing, the I want you to eat bone and skin on, I want you to follow this snout to tail philosophy. And these are the um, unique compounds that you'll get from consuming organs and um, kind of getting deeper into that embracing consumption of animal product. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the highlights that you value um, to explain that need to clients? To just the overall benefits? Like, right, of, of, of why would they need to eat dark meat or why skin is important to consume and um, kind of that, that whole whole animal consumption versus just eating protein. Right, I mean, there's things like collagen that we absolutely have to have that, you know, also is more bioavailable when we slow cook things. And so that's the mm-hmm. other, that's the other piece too, is, you know, um, the importance of, of cooking things properly. Um, so it's great to eat some stuff raw, but it's also optimal to slow cook in order to break down that collagen a little bit so that we can eat it or turn or make something into a broth so that we can drink it. So there's just so many benefits. I mean, for our skin and our nails and our hair, you know, which is like a really great motivator for women. Yeah, <laughs> that's often for mine. the satiating and the weight loss, which is also a great motivator for women. Um, so, and then of course, the saturated fat is absolutely critical for brain development. And so that's a really good one also for moms. Um, I work a lot with women. And so, you know, they tend to come to me when, you know, they're either newly pregnant because they're so concerned about their baby or, you know, they've had their kids for a little bit and their kids are now like maybe going off to kindergarten or going off, you know, on their own a little bit more. And the mom can kind of reflect on themselves a little bit like, oh, okay, I need to get, I need to start paying more attention to myself again. And it absolutely is required to, you know, make friends with animal protein in order to have a healthy, uh, any, to, just to be healthy, period. Yeah, and I think that's a huge population where they, whether we call that postpartum or what have you, but malnourishment comes into an effect because you've been on increased demand growing a child and then producing food for a child and um, then there's the running around for the child um, and they tend to get fat deprived and protein protein deprived as well and then they have panic attacks or anxiety or that slumping of their hormones and I think so much of that 
when we're eating these nourishing whole foods can can be a, a resolution and like you said making friends <laughs> with animal consumption is a big piece of that puzzle and and a part of the issue is the time management that it's easier to grab a quick carb um than a you know to braise or to um make bone broth or things like that there's often that desire with american culture to look for the quick fix mm-hmm Right. And then also just, you know, the, the devalue we've had on homemaking in general, right. With, you know, women going back to work and, you know, this perception that if a woman stays home, it's sort of a drain on house resources instead of actually enhancing everyone's life. Um, and there's another great book on that by Shannon Hayes called Radical Homemakers that I absolutely love. And she just talks all about that kind of stuff. And, you know, so so women who spend a little more time in the kitchen are actually, you know, improving everyone's life, uh, you know, and, and then there's tricks like Instant Pots, which are my, my favorite, absolute favorite kitchen gadget, um, these electric pressure cookers that, you know, you can start thinking about a slow cooked meal at four o'clock in the afternoon when your kids are like, what's for dinner? And actually have a beef stew on the table by six. It's absolutely incredible. Um, or, you know, just, just hacks, like, you know, it's easy to, it's as easy to roast two chickens as it is one. So just let's cook tons and tons of that protein while we're, while we've got the oven on and then we've just got it on hand so that we don't have to scramble during the week when things are hectic and we've just, we just know that we've got high quality proteins at our fingertips. Definitely. I, I, I find clinically, I find this huge aha when, I see clients transitioning and making food-related decisions because of how it will make them feel versus that obsessing on the um, maintenance part of it. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. it's just so much easier to do this. But then let's like walk through the rest of the week. So then you get something quick that's processed and you feel so junky and then you make more bad decisions and then you're, where are you the next, just one week away? Instead of when you start to think about decisions based on supporting your lifestyle, supporting your health so you can support the rest of your family, eating for how it will make you feel is such a long-term change as opposed to this in-the-moment convenience that people tend to go to. Definitely, and I'm a huge example of that I mean I went from having such horrible blood sugar swings where I would you know and and it's funny when I get up in front of a group of women and I talk about okay once I started eating paleo I could go from breakfast to lunch without a snack yeah and I I could go beyond lunch and you know 1 o'clock and I'd be a little hungry but I'd be okay and I wouldn't have tunnel vision and shakiness and even like the sweatiness I remember having you know always having to have my little bars and my my gluten-free bars and my (laughs) gluten-free snacks and everyone's nodding their head you know so whether it's affecting you know just kind of a mild crankiness or the full-on sort of pre-diabetic hypoglycemia that I was experiencing I think you know this um being liberated from your yes. food food addictions is absolutely huge and and also like the food cravings like i used to i used to remember i'd you know have some craving for lasagna or something and i you know wouldn't be satisfied until i came home and made it and now dinner is oh i've got some roasted chicken i've got some vegetables i can make a quick stir fry add some coconut milk and some curry powder it's chicken stir fry or it's chicken curry and it's just kind of it's whatever vegetable and whatever meat there is um, is dinner. So and my my been able to bring my family along with that too. 
with our um, most of our patient population, we use that mantra of channel savory. Um, and so, you know, really reworking that breakup of sugar and then um, our ketogenic um, group even further experiences that really clean dynamic uh, segregation or separation, I suppose, from carbohydrate intake. And um, I think when you add, I, I've been able to sing to women with the use of truffle, <laughs> uh, like truffle salt or, um, mm. you know, I think those same kind of like notes. Or um, when you add back in, again, whole cuts of meats and you're using skin and you're using uh, copious amounts of rendered lard or grass-fed butter or coconut oil, that then you can get those same excited um, desires uh, fulfilled, I suppose, and they sit better, that responsive, like you said, Carly. You don't get that feedback mechanism of the, the vicious cookie cycle of needing more mm -hmm. or filling that void. It sits nice. It's grounding. It's satiating. and um, control again. And yeah, yeah, definitely that control factor. Um, yeah, and the truffle thing for sure. My gosh, if I <laughs> right? have a little piece of truffle cheese at the end of a meal, I am in total yep. heaven, like floating on a cloud. There's a really good raw Gouda um, truffle and we're, we're big advocates of raw um, milk um, and raw cheeses for K2 and probiotics and what have you and so when I often bring that into someone's diet as a recommendation then we like become friends again <laughs> I feel like okay we're back together after yeah. <laughs> after I tell them oh you know about like well yeah gluten-free pizza better than but but I'd love you to have this then it's okay <laughs> yeah um, and bacon. Bacon usually helps too. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, before we, we close with you, as far as food as medicine, maybe two or three just off the cuff um, ingredients that you find yourself recommending over and over again or that you want our listeners to know about that are kind mm -hmm. of tools in your tool belt um, that you find to be very therapeutic and um, healing in the body and then how you recommend incorporating them into dishes. All right. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one that comes to mind isn't as much therapeutic as it is just flavor enhancing, and that is tomato paste. Okay. So actually, Whole Foods had reached out to me asking me, like, what's your favorite 365 product? We want to include you, you know, as a blogger in our whatever flyer thing. And honestly, the tube version of tomato paste is so great because normally tomato paste comes in a can right and it's kind of it's a little bit more than what you need so having a little squirt of tomato paste to add to any kind of beef stew or actually anything I make that's a that's a slow thing like in the instant pot or even a stir fry any soup just adding that little squeeze of tomato paste really kind of gives it a jolt of amazing flavor. So that's... I love those. They're like little paint tubes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. And it that. stays fresher longer in the fridge, right? Because there's no oxygen getting in there when you seal it up, you know, with the with the lid again. Right. So that's why I like the, the tube version. Um, fish sauce is another thing that I use tons and tons of now that I used to never cook with. Again, you can just add so much flavor with just a dash of it. So it's got both of these are full of umami, which is that like fifth taste mm -hmm. that kind of makes you makes things just extra savory and extra delicious. And so whenever I'm sauteing like spinach or, or anything, actually, I just instead instead of using salt, you just kind of add a few splashes of red boat fish sauce and it just gives it 
you know, it's not fishy tasting and it's just incredible flavor enhancement. Yeah, and both of those have a uh, good glutamine, like you said, that that umami mm-hmm. flavor profile, but also can be tonifying for the brain and, and uh, a little bit therapeutic for the gut. So I think those are good ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a third one. I have recently learned how to cook steak from frozen. Okay, please share. So, <laughs> so I actually wrote an article for Edible Boston that actually just came out today. Um, and so I need to get my hands on it. And I, um, I think you guys will be able to link to it once the show comes out. But basically, I do a lot. I, all my meat is frozen, right? I have this, this freezer full of meat and I just take it out when I'm ready to cook it. But sometimes it's not always thawed. And someone told me that you can actually cook a steak from a complete frozen block, and I didn't believe them. And so here's how you do it. You get your cast iron pan really hot, and you put some a little bit of salt on the pan and a little bit of you know bacon fat or lard, and then you take your frozen steak. You don't want it too, too thick, maybe you know an inch thick or so, and you press it down until you get a nice sear. So maybe, you know, 60 seconds on each side or even less. So you just want to have a nice hard sear on each side. And then what you do is you put it in a really low oven. I believe it was like 250. And you cook it for about 20 minutes to 30 minutes until it reaches about one, I want to say like 150 on the thermometer. I'm going to have to double check these things. I, I'll send you the, the actual test okay. so you can put it um, in there. But so what you're doing is essentially like a reverse sear, except for you can cook it completely from frozen. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. This is good. I like those Trader Joe's grass-fed steaks that are pretty affordable. So this, I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. You, you won't believe it. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. So that's just kind of a hack. A kitchen okay. Hack. Okay. And I, I feel like, so I have an old school pressure cooker, old school, I guess, <laughs> um, you know, that I use in my gas oven. Um, so I haven't, uh, played with it and I still do all my stocks, stovetop gas. One of my clients actually asked me about my gas bill and I've never thought of it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so they're like, so you run your gas that long? I was like, yeah. Um, so maybe I, maybe from this episode, I will look more into the instant pot. Um, cause I've had yeah. clients asking me about it all the time and I just kind of like Google and I'm like, oh, well it looks like, yes, you can make bone broth. It looks like, and I, I don't know, there's like a romantic nostalgia part of me that doesn't want to give it up (laughs) but um I think probably practical new mom world that that's maybe something I need to consider jumping into I definitely think it is and also just think about the fumes from the gas too right like that indoor pollution that it's creating right and also burning gas which I mean we just had this whole thing going on in North Dakota um yeah so yeah so you know when you can just use the electricity and, and use it in uh, such a fraction of the time to make the same product. I think it's it's sustainable. There as you go. Well right. Time saving. Right. Yeah. Right. For sure. So new things can be sustainable as well. <laughs> Get off the. <laughs> so lastly, um, Diana, thank you so much. Um, we just want to ask you. We ask all of our guests, what did you eat yesterday? Okay. Let's see. <laughs> it was Sunday. It was Sunday for health. Yes. Yes. Yesterday was Sunday. Um, okay. In the morning, I had an omelet with, with pesto in it, um, three egg omelet with pesto from the, with the eggs from my chickens, 
And then for lunch, I actually, we were kind of just goofing around the house all day, just kind of my husband was outside chopping wood and getting getting ready for winter. And I was, I actually cleaned out our attic and, you know, just kind of got organized. And so I was, I was uh, cleaning out the fridge and found all these sausages. So I cooked some pork Italian sausages and served that with, um, we have some amazing spinach right now that we're still harvesting in New England in December from the fields. And so my husband and I have been putting back each like an entire bag of spinach a day. And so I seared a whole bunch of um, spinach and garlic and then had that over leftover polenta from the other night. Uh, so that's that's a very heavy lunch for me, actually, but it was really great. And then for dinner, I made a fish curry with Ooh. a fish share. So we, we actually host a fish share here. So people come and they, they pay the fishermen, you know, like a, a seasonal amount. I don't know how many weeks it is. My husband sort of runs it all. And I never even know what fish it is. And I just kind of get it and cook it because he gets the newsletters and he still has yet to forward me one of the newsletters <laughs> explaining what the fish species is each week. Um, but it doesn't really matter. So uh, anyway, it was some kind of white fish and just kind of cooked it in a little coconut milk and curry powder and added some roasted butternut squash and red pepper and more spinach. So that was that was my dinner. I think you're going to forever win this competition of what did you eat yesterday. <laughs> you, had, you had Carly at um, husband chopping wood, and then you had then you had her again at sausage. <laughs> Anything sausage or chicharrones and or harvesting your own eggs and spinach. It's just really hard to compete with you, Diana. It's pretty romantic. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Extra time because it was Sunday. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest. We so enjoyed talking to you. I'm sure we could go on for a long time. And um, just so, so nice to hear um, you living the lifestyle that really sings so much to, I think, a, a lot of us and uh, the connection of bringing food on a daily basis as a therapy, but also as a um, growing, living, breathing element and, and being a part of the life, life cycle that we all experience. Mm, and is there, so sorry, is there anything that you want to share with um, all of our listeners of resources of where they can find your books and if okay, you have a website, sure. anything like that and a podcast, right? And we'll put links on the show notes too. Yeah. Um, so I am mostly at Sustainable Dish. So folks can find my podcast. I have got a little store. I do all my blog posts there. Um, and I also blog a lot on robwolf.com and write for a bunch of magazines and stuff, but pretty much everything can be found right on sustainabledish.com. And I'm pretty active on Instagram. So folks can um, find me at sustainable dish and I try to post every day and it's usually images from our farm. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Until next time, guys, thanks for listening in and um, stay nourished and stay well. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.